Welcome back, and thanks for joining me again. We have thus far been studying surfaces, and today we are going to explore the wildest of surfaces. Now, in the previous lecture, we showed possible models of the Earth of different genus surfaces. We studied the classic sphere, then we went to genus 1, the torus, genus 2, and higher. And we showed how this was related to something called the Euler characteristic, this amazing collection of numbers that were given to each particular surface, one number for each kind of surface. Now, this was such an important concept that I want to review it just for a little bit before we move on, because we will need it again today. Now, we showed how Euler characteristic, which is a local phenomenon, something that you can get by counting the vertices, edges, and faces where you're standing as you walk around the surface, helps understand the global property, the genus of the surface itself. The small local count gives you global data. Now, given a surface, we learned that no matter how we partition the surface into pieces, the value we get from the number of vertices minus the number of edges plus the number of faces based on your partition, this value, which is also called the Euler characteristic, does not change. In other words, you can partition your surface any way you want into vertices, edges, and faces. And this V minus E plus F does not change. It is a property given to the surface itself. Thus, we say that the Euler characteristic is a homeomorphic invariant. It does not change based on homeomorphic type. If two surfaces are homeomorphic, that means they must have the same Euler characteristic. Why? Remember what homeomorphism was? It's taking a surface, cutting it into pieces, ripping the pieces apart, doing whatever we want to the pieces, and then gluing it exactly the way we found it again. Since you cut it, rip it apart, do whatever we want, and glue it the same way, all the vertices, edges, and faces that we originally drew on the surface to cut have been re-glued exactly the way we found them. So the number of vertices, the number of edges, and the number of faces do not change. And thus, if two surfaces are homeomorphic, they must have the same Euler characteristic. Now, in other words, if two surfaces have different Euler characteristics, they cannot be homeomorphic to each other. Now, we computed last time that the Euler characteristic of a sphere was 2, the Euler characteristic of a torus was 0, the Euler characteristic of a genus 2 surface was negative 2, and thus, since these are all different, we know that these are all different surfaces. Since their Euler characteristics are different, the surfaces are different. Now, this lecture does several fantastic things. First, we show how to build any surface you want of any genus from gluing together simple polygons, just flat polygons that we understand really well. Then we show that there is more to surfaces than just their genus. Genus is one thing to talk about, but there is more that we haven't even touched upon. In particular, we construct surfaces which are non-orientable. Now, these objects have the interesting property that they have only one side to them. Now, we'll go more in detail later on. And finally, based on these ideas, we will be able to classify every possible surface imaginable. Given any surface, whether you can draw or that shows up in nature or shows up in the mathematical world, 
we will have complete understanding of it based on our ideas we learned today. Well, we have talked about surfaces of genus G and shown its relationship to the Euler characteristic. We had this formula that the Euler characteristic of a genus G surface is 2 minus 2G. Two well, in 1884, Felix Klein, one of the fathers of topology, topology was this branch that was starting to grow from geometry in the 1800s and the start of the 1900s. So this is the time that Felix Klein made his move. He was a brilliant topologist, and he developed a beautiful method of building surfaces from polygons. So in order for us to understand his method, let's begin with, by considering the square and what life would be like if we lived in the square, if the square was the intrinsic world in which we lived. Note that this is a surface that is finite, that's one of the conditions we wanted, and it is a surface with boundary, the four edges of the square. These are the places where you can go and actually fall off the square. Remember, this fails the neighborhood condition that we wanted a surface to have. Well, what happens if we start to manipulate the surface? Consider the classic example of a cylinder made from a square. Here we see a square, and I'm going to do a mathematical labeling trick, which is drawing arrows on the two sides of the square, the left and the right sides. I'm going to have them point the same way, and I'm going to call and label these arrows A. And what that means is that the left side and the right side are identified. They're actually the same arrow. So if I take this sheet of paper, the square, and since the left and the right side are the same, I can actually roll up that sheet of paper and make the sides touch. Those two edges become one. And by doing so, I get a cylinder. And now we have formed the cylinder from this square. And we use this notation of using arrows on the edges of the square throughout these lectures. Now this new object I've created by gluing the left and the right sides of the square together is a new world with different properties than that of the square. Remember, in the square, there's this whole square boundary of possibilities where you can fall off, where you have a place where the world doesn't have an entire 360 degrees of freedom around it. Well, once you glue it together, now you have a cylinder. And a cylinder, you can walk entirely around the cylinder beautifully, and now there are two separate components of boundary. There's the top circle and the bottom circle, which weren't connected at all. Previously in the square, the entire boundary was connected. If you think about it a little bit, about this property of the cylinder coming from the square, you notice that this is exactly what's happening in the game Pac-Man. Have you ever noticed in Pac-Man that Pac-Man goes from the left side of the screen to the right, and when he comes to the right side of the square that you play the game on, he doesn't die or fall off, he just reappears on the other side. He goes, comes to the right, and reappears on the other side, because the Pac-Man is being played on a cylinder. We can also consider another identification of the square, not just the left and the right sides. We can identify the top and the bottom sides as well. Here we see the square. I'm gonna identify the left and right sides with an up arrow, call it A, and I'm going to identify the top and bottom sides with the right arrow and call it B. Now, let's first start identifying the right and the left sides. I glue them together, I get the cylinder exactly as before, but now I have more to identify because the top ring of the cylinder and the bottom ring of the cylinder are the same thing. So what I can do is I can actually twist the cylinder just 
stretch it open because it's deformation, this rubber sheet geometry of topology I'm in, and glue these two rings. And if you notice, as I take my cylinder and start to twist and start to glue, right before I glue, I need to make sure that the arrows are pointing the same way when I glue it. And if you look carefully, you will see that as you're about to glue, the arrows are pointing the same way, and I can glue this thing. And what I end up with is a torus. So now we have constructed a cylinder from the square. We have also constructed a torus from the square. And the property of this torus coming from the square is encapsulated in the game called Asteroids. In Asteroids, you're the spaceship. And when you go to the right side of the screen, you come back on the left, exactly like going this way on the torus. And if you go on the top of the screen, you come back in the bottom, exactly like going this way on the torus. So you see, Asteroids, that game that's played on a square computer screen, is actually played in real life, mathematically, on a torus. Now what about other genus surfaces? We've built this torus, can we build more complicated ones? Here we see this object, which is an octagon, a perfect octagon, and I have labeled the octagon as follows. I have arrows pointing in certain directions, of four kinds of labelings, A, B, C, and D. And if I glue these objects along these arrows exactly the way I've defined them in the direction that they're pointing, so just like I glued it for the torus that the directions match up perfectly, I will end up with this object, a genus two surface. Now, it's not immediate, like the construction of the torus, getting it from the square, but you can see here if you can actually cut this out and try to make it with a little bit of flexibility in what you're working with, you will actually get this genus 2 surface. And in this genus 2 surface, notice that I've labeled the four rings. Each ring corresponds to my A's glued together will form one loop, my B's, my C's, and my D's will form in all four different loops meeting at this one point. It's a beautiful thing, and this was Klein's contribution. Now, it seems like there's a pattern here that we have constructed the octagon, this, this genus 2 surface with an 8-sided thing, and we constructed genus 1 surface with a 4-sided thing. Well, can we do this in general? And it turns out there is a pattern. This does work, that in general you can build a genus G surface obtained by gluing a 4G polygon, a polygon with 4G sides. Now, why does this work? Let's take a look at this octagon in a bit more detail. If I take my octagon and I slice it at a certain position and I cut it into two pieces, I'm going to consider that slice and cut and I'm going to label that edge E. Now, of course, remember, cutting and gluing are illegal because I'm changing the structure, but I'm cutting and I'm going to glue exactly the same way I cut. So homeomorphically, they're identical. So let me cut along this line pull it apart and label those things as E. So at the end of the day, I have to glue the E's back together and get exactly what I started from. I'm not changing the underlying topology. So when I cut it along E, I have two pieces, each one a pentagon. Now I can move the E around and make it into a ring, and you end up with a square with a little extra ring that's my E. You have two squares with the labeling that you get originally from your octagon now transposed on each of the squares. But if you look at each of the squares separately, 
you see that each square is basically this genus one surface, this torus. So my first square gives me a torus, my second square gives me a torus, and this little E-cut that I made is really two boundaries of torus. It's tori with little holes in them. And what I do is I need to glue the two boundaries together, because I need to glue the E's back together again. Remember, I cut them apart the first time. And when I do this, I get a genus two surface. So you see, each four-sided piece that I'm adding on gives me an extra increase in genus. In this way, we can get any surface we want. Take a look at this genus three surface made from this 12-sided polygon. Here we have this 12-sided polygon, all my labelings, A, B, C, D, E, and F. And after I glue all of these objects together, I get this beautiful genus three surface along with these boundary components with A's glued exactly right the right spot, making the A boundary disappear, the B's gluing and identifying together, making the B boundary disappear, on and on and on. And at the end of the day, I get a genus three surface with no boundary. There is no place you can fall off because all of the boundary of my 12-gon has been beautifully identified. So we have been exploring surfaces of genus G made from polygons. Now let's push the frontier a little bit more. A natural situation to consider is to generalize the notion of what a surface itself is to include things with boundary. Remember the two conditions we started off last time. We said a surface has to be finite and a surface cannot have boundary. Every point needs to look the same. But now the boundary seems to be a useful thing to talk about because we have used these things with boundary to build these beautiful genus G surfaces. So let's bring in boundary into our picture. Here, we have two kinds of points on our surface. Consider a disk. A point in a neighborhood around the disk can have 360 degrees of freedom. Or a neighborhood of a point on the boundary of the disk can look like part of the plane, not an entire 360 degrees. So you have two collections of points, the points that have the entire 360 degrees of freedom and those that don't. And the latter set of points, the ones not having 360 degrees, are called the boundary points of the surface. Places where you can literally fall off and die. Now, why do I make such a big deal of this? It's because the shape of the Earth was once thought to be a surface with boundary. And sailors were warned not to go too close to the boundary of the surface because you might fall off and die. So the boundary is a place you have to be careful about because the topology, how the world feels, completely changes. Instead of having 360 degrees of freedom, you don't anymore, and you might leave that surface. Now, taking any surface and removing interior faces of the surface results in surfaces with boundary components. So let's take a look at some examples. A classic example is a disk, which we get by taking a sphere and removing one face. If I remove a face from a sphere, take the interior of the face out, that I'm left with a boundary, a place where I can fall off. Because you could have continued that onto the rest of the sphere, but now I've removed that part. And I can actually put my fingers into that boundary and make it open because of rubber sheet geometry and lay it flat and I get a disc. So a disc is basically a sphere with one face removed. And if I want to take a sphere with two faces removed, then that's simply a cylinder. Because if I remove this face, and if I remove this face, I can put my hand through both of these holes that I've created, these boundary components, and just stretch it out a little bit, and I get the cylinder.
So we can get the cylinder by taking spheres and removing boundary components. Or in general, we can take a genus 2 surface, as you see here, and give it three boundary components by taking three different pieces off. Now, let's just consider this genus 2 surface with three boundary components. This is one of the reasons mathematicians are hesitant to use the word holes unless the context is very clear. Because here, if I say consider the holes on this object, what do I mean? Do I mean the holes of the genus, because that is a hole in the surface, or do I mean a hole of the boundary component, because that's also a hole on the surface? So that's why we say genus and boundary component to be really clear. And if the context itself makes it clear, we sometimes do use the word holes. But we do need to be careful. Now, how does Euler characteristic, a property we spent a lot of time talking about last time, change with respect to boundary? Well, consider a genus 2 surface with three boundary components, exactly this picture we have. Now, each boundary component, what has changed for the Euler characteristic perspective? Well, each boundary component has lost a face. Because remember, I've removed the interior of a face out. I've kept all the vertices and edges. The boundary is still there, but the inside is gone. So thus, every time I remove a face to get a boundary, I have lost one value in my Euler characteristic. In order to get a surface without boundary, I need to put that face back on again, which mathematicians call capping off. I've, I'm capping that ring off again to remove that boundary. So the Euler characteristic of a genus 2 surface is negative 2. We know this. Thus, the Euler characteristic of a genus 2 surface with three boundary components is negative 2 minus 3, because I've lost three faces, which is negative 5. So we can compute Euler characteristic of these objects just by looking at the number of boundary components and the genus itself. Now let's look at another example. Consider these two surfaces. I'm going to call it surface X and surface Y. What are the genera of these surfaces? What is the genus of surface X and what is the genus of surface Y? Well, if you look at surface X, it's easy for us to tell the genus. It's designed that way from our extrinsic world. We're looking at the surface from the outside. So we say, ah, it has a genus 1, and it just has that one boundary component there. Let's just cap it off just to make sure we have no boundary components. And then if you cap it off, then it has no boundary components. And we see that this is a genus 1 surface after it gets capped off with no boundary. We fully understand what X is about. We know it's Euler characteristic. Since it's genus 1 surface with no boundary, its Euler characteristic is 0. But remember, it has the original x has that boundary, so we need to lose one face. So the original Euler characteristic for x, its uh, Euler characteristic turns out to be negative 1. Now, what happens to surface y? For y, we actually need to do some work. In the extrinsic world, we're extremely confused as to what the surface looks like. You see that it's a surface because you can walk from the bottom region, you, you have this twist, and then you go to the top region, the, and then you can twist back to the bottom region. Well, instead of understanding from an extrinsic way what's going on, let's compute the Euler characteristic first because that's the thing we can actually do. Locally, we can do that process to get global data. So let's cut the surface into little strips and regions so we can get a handle on stuff. By cutting it into strips and regions as follows, if I make those cuts, I see that the number of vertices is 12, the number of edges is 18, the number of faces is 5, so I know that the Euler characteristic of this surface is negative 1. That's great. But negative 1 is the Euler characteristic of the surface. 
Now, what is the original surface? What is the genus that the surface really encapsulates? Well, let's walk on the boundary. Take a point on the boundary and just start tracing it up. And as you trace all the way, you see that you come back to where you started from. And you've covered every bit of the boundary of the surface. In other words, this surface has only one boundary component stretched like this. So it's a surface of Euler characteristic negative one with one boundary component. So if I add that boundary component back on again through homeomorphism, I can cap it back on. Then my Euler characteristic increases by one because I've capped an extra one on. So my Euler characteristic is zero. It's an Euler characteristic zero surface and it has no boundary now because I've capped it. Well, that has to be the torus. So we see that the right surface, surface Y, is a torus with one hole missing. The left surface, surface X, is a torus with one hole missing. They're the same thing. And if you look at this picture, you realize, how is that even possible? Well, these surfaces are the same thing, but they're twisted in space differently. X, the way the picture is drawn, focuses on its genus. That's what it's honoring. The boundary on X is kind of thrown to the side. The boundary isn't important. Whereas in surface Y, the surface focuses on its boundary. That's what dominates the beauty of surface Y. And the genus is somewhere hidden, and you have to work hard to find it. Now, as extrinsic creatures, we're far more comfortable with surface X because we see the genus immediately. But if you lived on the surface, either X or Y, your life wouldn't be different at all. They're the same thing. So far, we have seen surfaces having genus and surfaces having boundary components. There's one more property surfaces can have, and it's called orientability. We say a surface is orientable if it has two different sides, and a surface is non-orientable if it only has one side. Now, what does this mean? Well, a surface is orientable if it has two sides that can be painted with two different colors. Let's look at the torus. I'm gonna paint the outside of the torus red, and imagine the torus is made of a very, very thin layer. If I paint the outside of the torus red, I can actually paint the inside of the torus blue. There's this two coloring to this torus, the outside of the torus and the inside. I can't see the inside because the outside completely dominates it. Let's take a look at a disc. In a disc, I can paint the top of the disc red, and I can paint the bottom of the disc blue, and you can see that the two colors never meet except along the boundary. Since the torus has no boundary, there's no place you can fall off the torus. The colors never meet. And on the disc, the two colors meet exactly along the boundary. If I lift the disc up, you see where the red and the blue meet perfectly. Well, consider this other surface, what we just looked at earlier, where we computed the the genus to be uh, one, a surface of genus one with one boundary component. Here you can see the bottom region I can color red and the top region I can color blue. And as I'm walking from the bottom region to the top region, I have this twist. And as I twist, I go from the top blue here and it twists under. So the, so the blue and the red are perfectly enmeshed. And as I walk back, it twists back. So it's red in the bottom and it twists under to be red and the top has to be blue. Thus far, all our surfaces, all three of them here, and every surface we've seen so far, has been orientable. We say a surface is non-orientable if it has only one side. Well, how is this possible? Let's take a look. Consider the Mobius strip. It's the most famous example in mathematics of a non-orientable surface. 
It's a strip of paper with a twist that you put to glue back together again. It's the square we saw earlier, except instead of gluing it to get a cylinder, I just put a little twist and then I glue it. And if you see this picture again, notice, let's start painting my surface red. And as I paint, as I continue to paint, as I walk around, it becomes red. I twist and I keep painting red on the inside. I twist and I paint red all the way in the back. And I twist back and I keep painting red. In fact, if I keep doing this, the entire surface becomes red. There's no place for blue at all. The entire surface is red. There's no place for blue. There are no two sides. There's only one. Now consider another example. Look at this surface here. It looks just like what we talked about earlier with a little extra twist on the right side. Let's start painting it red in the bottom region. If I paint it red in the bottom region, then my twist, since I'm looking under the surface, I have to paint, it becomes blue, it's great. If I keep painting it, then it twists back onto my red region on top, great. Now if I go all the way to the left and if I twist, it has to be painted blue now. But wait, this is the region that I had started to paint red in the first place. How can I paint this blue if it was red? That means I must only have one color. I can't paint a region that's blue that's already red, thus I get in trouble, thus the surface is non-orientable. So we see these are two examples of non-orientable surfaces. It's impossible for us to use two colors on these without having a contradiction, so only one color is possible. Now it turns out that non-orientability is very counterintuitive for two reasons. First, it is only a global phenomenon. Notice that if you stand at a surface at any point, even if it's orientable or non-orientable, life looks the same. It looks like you can walk around and that you can always paint your world red around you. But if you walk around the entire surface, it's only when you get this contradiction. The Mobius strip looks fantastic at every snapshot. It's when you come back all the way do you get this contradiction that you're in this non-orientable world. So it's a global phenomenon for us to grasp, unlike the Euler characteristic, which happens to be a local phenomenon. Secondly, the, this non-orientability has drastic consequences. Let's imagine you're a left-handed person, and you're walking around the surface, and you're left-handed all the time, and your friends are right-handed. Now, as you leave your friend on the Mobius strip and come back to them again, making this entire loop, it turns out you are still left-handed. Nothing about you has changed. But all your friends appear to be left-handed to you. They were right-handed, but now they look left-handed. And to them, you were left-handed, and now, they, now you appear to be right-handed to them. Because your hands have lost orientation when you come all the way back around. Just as we constructed all orientable surfaces from gluing polygons, it turns out we can construct non-orientable surfaces from gluing polygons as well. Klein pointed this out again. Now just from the square alone, we can get the following three non-orientable surfaces. The first one is the Mobius band that I talked about earlier, which is the evil twin of the cylinder. It's the exact same square, the same A labeling of my two sides, except I'm going to switch one of my side arrows. And when I do this, my gluing, I try to have glue A to A, but the arrows don't match if I have a straight gluing. I have to twist a little bit to glue again. In the second part, I have my square again to build another surface. Now my arrows don't match for my A's on the right and the left, but the top ones have my B's and they do match. So first, let's start by gluing my B's together. And when I glue my B's, I get a elongated cylinder since my B's have matched up. But now as I try to glue my A's together, they don't match to get the torus. So I need to take my object 
and put the tube inside it, make it intersect itself and go inside it to try to match up. And this is called a Klein bottle. It is a non-orientable surface and it is somehow the evil twin to the torus. Now this Klein bottle cannot exist in three dimensions because the surface has to intersect. You need four dimensions to understand this. And we're going to talk about four dimensions in future lectures. So let's keep this in mind. The last object we can get is called the projective plane and it's an entirely new beast that many of us haven't seen before at all. Here I switch my orientations for A so they're matching up in opposite directions and my arrows, my orientations for B are also going in opposite directions. So I have a Mobius strip when I glue my A's together and then I need to glue my Mobius strip to itself. By doing this I get this extremely complicated, extremely uh, irregular object in three dimensions. And it exists beautifully in higher dimensions if you want to think about this. But this is a projective plane. Well, it seems like we keep introducing new concepts, genus, boundary, orientability. Will this end? It seems like surfaces are getting more and more complicated. We started with the Euler characteristic and genus, showed the relationship between them. Now we're talking about boundary and orientability. Well, there is a beautiful theorem that talks about classifications of every surface possible. It is one of the most amazing theorems in mathematics, and it was built not by one person, but by several mathematicians working over decades. It was based by the works of Klein, of Mobius, who himself is a mathematician in topology, of Dane, who we'll see later, of Hagard, who we're going to see in three-dimensional objects, and Rado, ranging from the 1870s to the 1920s. And it is based on the equivalence of homeomorphism, where we say that every surface that you can draw, every surface that exists in three dimensions or any dimension possible, if you're talking about a surface, do I have a solution for you? Can be classified by three properties. One, it's orientability. Two, it's number of components. And three, it's Euler characteristic. If you can tell me the surface's orientability, whether it's orientable or not, if you can tell me how many boundary components it has, and if you can tell me what its Euler characteristic is, then you have completely understood everything you need to know about surfaces. Remember, the Euler characteristic and the genus are, are somehow the same. They're built into one another. So the genus and the Euler characteristic are somehow exchangeable. So the boundary components, orientability, and the Euler characteristic tell us everything. Thus, for any given surface, we know exactly what it is. Now, such a result does not exist for any higher dimensional objects at all. For three-dimensional objects, four-dimensional objects, mathematicians do not know how these objects work in full classification. We fully and completely understand surfaces up to homeomorphism. It is a beautiful, beautiful result. Now, with this lecture, we have a full understanding of all types of surfaces possible. The orientability, boundary components, and Euler characteristic tell us exactly where we stand. And moreover, we have learned from Klein that all our surfaces, orientable or not, can be built simply by gluing edges of polygons. Well, in the next lecture, we are going to apply this knowledge, this powerful machinery of classification of surfaces, to talk about knots. How can surfaces help us understand knots better? Stay tuned.